0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and he prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we do need you. I need you this
1: hour. We need you every hour of the day, every hour of the week, every minute of every hour, but I certainly need uh, your help this hour as we open the scriptures and as we consider this Lord's Supper, this Passover meal that Jesus instituted with his disciples. Help us to see you. We all need you. Help us to see Christ, to believe him, and to take him at his word, and to experience him for the first time or anew this evening. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, If you are a fourth through a sixth grader and want to head out with Patrick and Gail and talk about the Lord's Supper this evening, you can do that now. Some of my fondest memories of life come from dinner tables. I don't know about you, uh, but perhaps maybe community group Christmas dinners or Vacation dinners around a Airbnb table or at a cabin and the inevitable card games that follow or dates with my wife, Marcy. Long ago and still ongoing at dinner tables at restaurants or a picnic and no table around but still getting to hang out. Nightly family dinners at my parents' house growing up. I still remember many of those individual dinners but none of those tables or places mean much at all without the people around those tables. The reason those are such fond memories is because of the people, because of the laughs, because of the conversation that happened around the table. What happened at the table is what is important. Apart from what happens or what happened at those tables is just an ordinary meal. I mean, we all eat two or three, sometimes four meals a day. Uh, And we just sit around the table, and you think about it, it's just a really strange thing. We sit down at a piece of wood in a chair, and we have food in front of us, and then we put that food in our mouth like 50 or 60 times, or I don't know, give or take. Uh, That's a weird thing. And so it's a weird thing for meals to have such important significance in our life. But tonight, we're going to take a one-week break from Exodus to consider the most important meal that's ever taken place. And like the meals in our life— uh, it is the people, or perhaps the person, at the table and the meal that he institutes that makes it makes it so important. We've thought through the Passover meal in the book of Exodus that comes before and points us toward this meal that Jesus institutes here in the Lord's Supper. So, since we celebrate and remember that meal every single week together at Christ Church, I wanted to slow down a bit and really take some time to consider what it is that we are doing. So tonight we're going to look at the story as it progresses in three movements, three movements throughout history. The past expectation of the Lord's Supper, the present celebration of the Lord's Supper, and then the future culmination of the Lord's Supper. The past expectation, the present celebration, and the future culmination. So it's admittedly a a dangerous thing to just kind of parachute into a book without context like we're doing here in Mark 14, uh, without getting our bearings but in verse 12, we're just going to do it, all right? Verse 12, we read, and we heard Quinn read for us, that this is the first day of unleavened bread. This is the week-long festival uh, that goes right together with the Passover festival. These two festivals were two of the most important feasts, through two of the most important times of the Jewish calendar. And so Jesus, along with the Jews, would make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate and remember how God had delivered his people out from Egypt, how Israel, like Egypt, was in equal danger because of their sin, because of their rebellion. But even through the death and judgment was all around them, uh, Israel remained safe through the blood of the lamb, so death was passing over Israel because they were taking God at His word and trusting in His promises by receiving and responding uh, His life through faith. And so, Jewish people from all over the world, once a year, would converge on this city to celebrate and remember this festival. They would contribute offerings to the temple. They would uh, purchase sheep together as a family. Then uh, they would then sacrifice and then uh, eat together, they would contribute other burnt offerings as well. During this week, the population of Jerusalem would, would quadruple from 50,000 to 200,000. It's a busy, busy time. It's a big deal. And Mark, on his way through telling this gospel account, has been dropping hints that this Passover week is the whole thing to which his whole story is pointing. There's been Passover hints dropped as breadcrumbs, leading up to chapter 14. Jesus is in Bethany, which is a two-mile walk from Jerusalem. But because Passover must be observed within the city limits, inside the walls of Jerusalem, he tells his disciples to go ahead. But they ask him in verse 12, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Because Jerusalem is jam-packed with pilgrims from all over the world— one does not just walk into Jerusalem without making plans on this week. You have to make preparations, you have to make plans, but Jesus has made them. Real quickly, things are going to look like they are beginning to spiral out of control, very quickly. After this meal, things are gonna go real bad, real quickly, if we didn't know the story. The music seems to probably would, would maybe grow more ominous, grow more frantic. But Jesus is showing, even as he's telling the disciples what to expect and where to find a man with a water jug on his head and all this, he is saying things are exactly uh, as I intend them to be. Things are not out of control. So you disciples are to follow this water jug guy back to his house and say in verse 14, you're to tell him, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? His questions of this guy, his commands, seem pretty forthright and direct, perhaps even discourteous to this guy who is preparing this place. But the point is, this is Jesus' guest room. This is his Passover feast. He will eat it with his disciples. Everyone else is kind of just along for the ride. They're like riding the wave of this growing narrative, and they will all reap the impending benefits of his story. So Jesus says that the guy will show you a large upper room. This is a, a, like a guest room, which will be furnished and ready to go. Probably not like uh, a long rectangular table like you've seen in a Leonardo da Vinci painting or something, but likely a floor-level, U-shaped table that would have taken up much of the room with pillows in which uh, Jesus and his 12 disciples would have plenty of room to, to lounge about on the ground. So Jesus says when you find that room, you'll find it furnished, And in that room, go ahead and start preparing the Passover meal for us. Unsurprisingly, in verse 16, uh, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they there prepared the Passover. So things are happening. The dominoes are beginning to fall. So cut scene and then pick it up that night. Now, in the present celebration of the Lord's Supper, in verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And they and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, "'Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me.'" Now, the Passover feast is a serious time, and we'll talk in just a minute about kind of the stuff that would happen around the table and around the meal, but everyone is still probably enjoying one another. This may or may have not been the first time that these disciples with Jesus had celebrated a Passover meal together. They're likely having a good time, perhaps even a quiet or muffled laugh here and there. And then Jesus says, perhaps out of nowhere, one of you is going to betray me. It's like the record scratch buzzkill, right? I mean, no more smiles, no more laughs. Hearts begin to perhaps beat a little faster and more nervously. Everyone looks wide-eyed at each other. And then perhaps at Jesus, verse 19, they begin to be sorrowful. And they say to him one after another, is it I? Like with two quick sentences, Jesus says that one is going to betray them, one who is right here. With two quick sentences, the entire atmosphere of the room has gone from remembrance of God's salvation to present questioning and doubt. Perhaps you've experienced a a life-altering sentence. You're at the park playing with your kids or out enjoying a coffee with a friend or something, and you get a phone call. And on the other end of that phone call, they say, are you sitting down? You might need to sit down. Your cousin was killed in a car accident, or I've got news, your mother has cancer. In an instant, the things, the laughs that you were having with your friends or with your family, uh, the the troubles that you might have been experiencing uh, in that afternoon now suddenly seem so trivial and meaningless. The disciples, They go around the table, and they ask, is it I? This is likely a defensive, like, surely, Jesus, it isn't I kind of question. But maybe, now confronted with this life-altering sentence that one of them is a betrayer, maybe now there's a little twinge of doubt there as well. Maybe not for Peter. Maybe he doesn't experience doubt. He's before and after this event. He is confident that he will not betray Jesus. He is confident in his loyalty to Christ, but that's just the thing, isn't it? While we know who the traitor is, Mark has already told us in chapter 14, this this chapter, verses 10 and 11, that it's Judas Iscariot. He is the one who's going to betray Jesus. There's a sense in which all of them are traitors, aren't they? Peter's confident that he won't betray Jesus, but he will. He will three times. And the remaining 11 perhaps don't betray him with the same degree of treachery and deceit as Judas or even as brazenly as Peter. But when the shepherd is struck, the sheep all scatter in fear and in unbelief. It is grace and only grace that allows God to dwell and to eat with his people. He is strong and faithful when they are weak and faithless. It's only by his body and blood, which they are made right and new, which they are made confident. Mark is going to, as he often does in his book, he's gonna organize something around what uh, some scholars, they have got a better word for this, but perhaps we can just call it a sandwich, where Mark puts one thing here, and then under that, there's something, and then another thing that looks exactly like the other top piece of bread. And he's doing this to highlight the meat in the middle. And this is exactly what's going on here in chapter 14. He's saying Jesus is predicting betrayal on one side of the Lord's Supper with Judas. And then on the other side of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is going to predict betrayal on the other side with Peter. And the meat in the middle is the bread and the cup. The meat in the middle, the shimmering diamond, which is lying on the black velvet cloth of unbelief and faithlessness underneath it, is Christ and his faithfulness. Jesus here is pointing out the particularly heinous betrayal of Judas. It is deliberate and severe. He's not just running away from Christ, but he is delivering him over. And yet God, in his providence, is using the selfish and sinful actions of this turncoat to bring about the forgiveness of sins, to bring about the new covenant. There is betrayal, there is treachery, there's doubt, there's uncertainty, And at least in Mark's account, that other disciples, they don't know who the betrayer is. So they're asking, surely it's not me. I, I, I hope it's not me. It's not me, I think. Perhaps we've all felt that kind of doubt, that kind of uncertainty. But then God comes to his people amidst their doubt. In verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now, since Jesus was leading his disciples through the Passover meal, like a Jewish father would lead his family through a Passover meal each year, perhaps a a little context for this meal might be helpful. After initial blessings over this special day and over the wine, the patriarch or the father of the family would initiate the drinking of the first cup of wine. You would have four cups of wine, which he would take a drink from and then pass, and they would all drink together. And then, followed Uh, After this first cup, some vegetable appetizers, and then a second cup of wine. And after the second cup, the youngest son of the family would ask the father, would ask the patriarch of the household, Father, why is this night different than any other night? The patriarch would then retell the Exodus story, drawing special attention to three things. He would say, and Jewish fathers or Jewish patriarchs of households would say the exact same three things— On script, they would say, the Passover. These are the things to to, to pay special attention to. The Passover, because God passed over the houses of our fathers in Egypt. Unleavened bread, because our fathers were redeemed from Egypt. And bitter herbs, because the Egyptians embittered the lives of our fathers in Egypt. And then the patriarch would put himself into the story. He would say, it is because of that which the Lord did for me that I came out of Egypt. And then after singing through several psalms, the the father would pronounce blessing over the bread. He would break it. He would distribute it to the family. And this is followed by the eating of the entire rest of the meal, including the lamb. A third cup of wine is then blessed and sung over with singing of psalms. And then a fourth cup concludes the meal. Now, understanding all of that is certainly not necessary for understanding this Passover, this Lord's Supper, Uh, that Mark is emphasizing here because it is not the Passover which Mark is emphasizing. There is actually something new happening. We'll get to that. Nevertheless, the disciples must have been taken aback when in the taking of the meal that they had probably taken 30, 40, 50 times in their lives, the patriarch, Jesus, he stands up, he takes the bread, and after blessing it, he breaks it, and then he goes completely off script. It have, like Speaking of record-scratching stops, again, this is one of them. He does not follow the liturgy, which they had all likely memorized, that they, if they were fathers of their own families, that they would have led their own families in Passover meals. He says, after taking the bread, blessing it, and breaking it, he says, take. This is my body. Say, what? Like, this would have been a really startling thing for them to hear. Now, Luke, in his account of this meal, adds Jesus's words, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me, like, in remembrance of what? Nothing has even happened yet. But I think if we stay in Mark, we actually might understand what he means. In chapter 6, there are 5,000 Jews surrounding Jesus as they're listening to him teach. And then we read in Mark 6, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. This is identical language in our chapter here, chapter 14, of blessing, of breaking, and giving. And then two chapters later, After Mark 6 and Mark 8, Jesus is surrounded by 4,000 Gentiles and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people. Jesus is here now in this Passover meal, identifying himself as the same miraculous bread from heaven that is given to Jew and Gentile alike to sustain and to give them life. And then, verse 23, he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank of it and he said to them again now completely off script this is the my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many he's likely here taking the third cup the third cup of wine and in doing so likewise to the bread he's saying that the wine is himself is his blood now, we all knew that this was coming. We have, we're familiar with this story. We, if you've been around a, a Christian church very long, you've, you've taken the Lord's Supper as well. You've, you've heard this. We've heard of Jesus's body and blood. We know that there are two elements that make up the Lord's Supper. But for Jesus to say that the wine that they were to drink was his blood would have been shockingly appalling— I mean, if we're just listening, if we're, if we're listening in for the first time, we might be tempted to think that Jesus has just uh, mandated that his disciples now partake in cannibalism and vampirism. They're to eat, eat dead bodies and drink dead blood or something. This is weird, especially for a Jewish person. Blood was to be considered the life of any living thing. So Jews were prohibited in the law from drinking blood but this is altogether setting up the coming offense of, the cro- of his cross, the death and the curse of, of his cross, which actually then brings life. He says that this cup is the blood of the covenant. A covenant is anywhere in, in, in the Bible where God comes to his people, where he makes them promises that will keep God and keep, uh, keep the people in a relationship with him. And nearly always when a covenant is inaugurated or begun, it is sealed or ratified, made serious and binding. It's ratified by blood. serious business, accompanied with very solemn vows. And the language that Jesus uses, the blood of the covenant, comes straight from Exodus. It's a chapter which we'll get to in a couple of months, in chapter 24 of Exodus, which is some really, really weird stuff. Listen to this in Exodus 24, and Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. We'll get to more of that when we get to that in Exodus 24, but Jesus, God himself, is now instituting a new covenant, replacing the old one that was instituted by Moses. But while the blood of that old covenant of the law could only cleanse externally, could only hit the people and purify them externally, the blood of Jesus' new covenant will cleanse internally. When Clint was reading from the book of Hebrews in our assurance, assurance of pardon, Uh, The the writer of the book of Hebrews is reflecting back on what uh, some prophets were looking ahead to. Someone like Jeremiah, who before the coming of Jesus looked ahead and said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke— though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law with them in them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant of Christ will be a covenant which will finally bring the forgiveness of sins, which will finally bring new hearts, will transform to the uttermost and deepest ways in which the old covenant of Moses never could. The new covenant which God's people had been waiting for for centuries was now finally here at this night, in this around this U-shaped table in this upper room in Jerusalem. The old wineskins are turning to new ones here right before their eyes. There's something new happening in this cup of the new covenant, and I don't think it's an accident that Jesus takes a cup Sure, like, I mean, you have to have a cup which holds wine in it, that's for sure, but the cup of the blood of the new covenant that followed just 13 verses later by Jesus praying that the cup of God's wrath, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's asking God that the cup of God's wrath might be removed from him. The cup of the covenant is not only representative of Jesus' shed blood for his people, but it also reminds us of the cup of God's wrath, which is to be poured out and Emptied completely onto Jesus as he lie, as he hangs dying on the cross. the The cup of God wrath is God's wrath is poured out and emptied. Not one drop of this wrathful wine is left in it. Jesus absorbs this wrath in the death in his death of the great as, as being the great Passover Lamb, which shelters all those. Who hide under him and his cross. So, though Jesus is surrounded by men who are weak, who are afraid, who are self promoting, who are self serving, he invites them into communion, into shared life with him through his coming shed blood. So, perhaps tonight, as you come to the table, you might take a minute as before you take a cup of the wine or the juice, and you might even look at it. Look at its darkness and consider that that ought to be yours. That ought to be yours in that cup, but instead it is not. Because Jesus has shed his blood, has poured out his blood on our behalf for those whom he has come to save. Now, one quick word of clarification here. I've said, like, represents or reminds a couple of times, and I think that's right. In, in, in addition to Jesus' words in Luke, which he says, do this in remembrance of me, I find it very unconvincing that Jesus, or that the disciples would have thought that Jesus was literally saying as he tore the bread, he, as, he, as he said, this is my body, that they thought, that's your body. Like, were, th- were they thinking, like, wait, is it this body, or is, is it this body? Like, which is your body? Well, it's, it's representative of his body. The, the figurative body and blood in the Last Supper are surely something similar to what Jeremiah did in Jeremiah 19 when he, he like walks out with this piece of pottery. He walks out of the city gates of Jerusalem and he throws this piece of pottery into the wall and smashes it. And one commentator says that Jeremiah could have said, Jerusalem, this is you. But he doesn't need to. Like everyone, the symbolism is very clear to everyone that what he is trying to say. Or when Jesus does something similar with the fig tree. Or when he he says, I am the vine. Or I am the door. Jesus often speaks with very heightened and symbolic language. Using symbols and symbolic language... uh, this, this is what Jesus is doing here. There's, there's nothing magic. There's nothing saving in this bread or what's inside of this cup. After all, Judas himself, he must have uh, at least begun eating the Passover meal with them. And at least from Mark's account, we don't have an indication that he didn't take all of it. So our focus must not necessarily be on the bread and the cup, but on the Christ behind the bread and the cup. It is his body and his blood. Mark's focus for the entire book is on Christ. In fact, we might summarize the entire gospel of Mark with one question of just who is this man? Who is this man called Jesus? And so this meal of remembrance is symbolic of Jesus's body and blood, but we don't have to say that it's just symbolic. I think perhaps Many of us uh, have been around a Catholic uh, influence or perhaps have, have come out of the Catholic church ourselves, and perhaps tried to maybe even like, over-correct. Uh, whereas you might have been taught your entire life that this is the actual and literal body and blood of Christ. Now we kind of, as sometimes as Protestants, want to correct hard and say, there's nothing going on here. Everybody, nothing going on. In baptism or in the Lord's Supper. It is just a symbol. And yet, we use symbols all the time to proclaim real meaning. And oftentimes, these symbols actually are the things that carry the meaning itself. Ask any Revolutionary War or Civil War soldier if the flag was just a symbol. Yes, it was a symbol for these soldiers, but as soon as the flag went down, any soldier would have thrown down their own weapon to grab the flag and hoist it up. The flag was not just a symbol. Yes, but it meant something. The flag was the army. And in the same sense, in a very real sense, the Christian flag that we carry, that is our banner, is the bread and the cup. And so we regularly remember to signify, to proclaim, and to even nourish deep communion with Christ and with each other in this meal. It's symbolic, but it's not just symbolic. It is, but it isn't. It has real, actual meaning. Now remember, we aren't celebrating the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. They were celebrating a Passover meal with the whole thing of uh, lots of cups of wine and bitter herbs and vegetables and the whole liturgy that goes with it. But this, this meal that we remember and we celebrate is a new covenant meal. In which many other celebrations and uh, meals in themselves are also absorbed into this one. We perhaps even can remember the Day of Atonement. We can perhaps even remember the peace offerings of the Old Testament. They all get absorbed into this thing. This is why we aren't necessarily picky about this bread being unleavened bread. Uh, We're celebrating and remembering the Lord's Supper, not the Passover. We are celebrating and remembering the breaking of Jesus' body and the spilling of Jesus' blood that comes to us in a very real and significant spiritual way weekly through these symbols. Just like God meets with us through his spirit and the reading of his word, just as God really and actually meets with his people and the singing of songs and in praying and even in the preaching of his word, God can really and actually meet with us in this meal. Jesus institutes this meal for it to be an ongoing and visceral, real uh, sense in which we can meet with Christ, which we can understand and taste. And even if you are drinking the wine, taste the bitterness of his sacrifice on our behalf. So, on the way to the table, maybe you ought to pray that God would help you to taste and see, that you might taste and see what Christ has done for you, his love for you. Maybe you can do as Clint suggested many months ago, and what I've done every single Sunday since. I shared in a sermon that day uh, that the way of independence, the way of autonomy, the natural way of self is kind of like a right-handed thing or your dominant hand, Uh, The natural way of life is just natural, unthinking, often defensive. We just don't, we don't even have to think to use our right hand, or if you're left-handed, to use your left hand. But just like writing with your left hand, writing with your off hand, or your off hand takes careful uh, contemplation and slow thought. This is the way of the gospel. The gospel is a left-handed thing. The way of grace the way of trusting in the work of, an, of another, the way of considering Christ's love for you takes slow and careful, reflective contemplation. And so maybe uh, you might tonight and every night after this one continue, or for the first time maybe take and tear the bread with your left hand. It's a little difficult, but it causes you to slow down, to, to consider the way of grace that is not just natural and even defensive to keep this from from being meaningless or rote repetition, to remember Christ died for me, his body broken for me, his blood shed for me. So know that it is possible for you to come forward and take of this meal in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord. This is a meal, get this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that some people are dying some people are dying because they are not taking this meal in the way that they ought. Perhaps because they're not Christians. Perhaps because they are taking it in such a way that is uh, disunifying of the body. So this is, this is actually much more than just a symbol. If people are dying from it, this is a serious meal. And so it is possible for you to come forward and to eat the bread and drink the juice uh, in such a way that is not pleasing to the Lord and might actually put you in danger if you are actually not in covenant with him. I'm not suggesting that you might die from this meal, but maybe uh, if you aren't a Christian. This is a serious, serious meal. This is why we, take it, we, why we say this so many times to every week in and week out. This is a, a meal for those who are saying that they are in union with Christ, that they, their lives make no sense apart from an empty tomb and their communion with him. So this is a question for us to consider as we consider this Lord's Supper. Are you in agreement with God about your sin? Do you agree with God about your current situation, about your position? If you aren't a Christian, that you are unsafe. Or, if you are a Christian, do you agree with God that you are in a position of safety, of life, of love, of sonship because of the work of Christ on your behalf? Are you trusting in Christ alone to make you right before God? Left to ourselves, none of us are any better off than these weak and doubting and betraying disciples. Our only hope is to trust in the full and faithful work of Christ in the middle of of this faithless bread sandwich. The meal that the disciples took here with Jesus would have been one of the most memorable meals of their life, probably the most memorable meal and certainly one of the most meaningful nights of their life. They saw the Passover meal, which they had celebrated every year up until this point, and they saw it and experienced it as finding its final fulfillment in this man in this Christ and in his coming cross. And the taking of the Lord's Supper should be an ongoing and regular reminder to us of the covenant with, under which we live in safety and in friendship with God. It has meaning for us in the present. It points us back in time remembering what Jesus has done for us. And it does certainly have meaning for us in the present as Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves before we take this meal. And by the way, I don't think this necessarily means that before we come to the meal, we have to like try to think of every sin that we have committed this week and make sure that we've confessed it. We do take sin seriously and watch, which is why we uh, confess our sin earlier and earlier in the service together. but I think what Paul is saying there as we examine ourselves is to examine whether we have unity with one another in the body. Are we leaving some people out? Are we eating the meal without others? That or, that's the thing that we ought to examine. So the Lord's Supper has present implication for our lives as we pur- pursue holiness and m- seek to maintain unity with one another as the body of Christ. But now, lastly, the Lord's Supper also looks forward in expectation. And lastly, the, the future culmination of the Lord's Supper. In verse 25, we read, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In the midst of betrayal, in the midst of uncertainty, and the coming crucifixion, Jesus confidently says, Guys, this is about to look real bad, real quick. Just wait for it. It's gonna get real nasty. But we will have a meal like this again. And not just with twelve of us, but with like twelve billion. And it's gonna be great. What Jesus isn't saying is that he won't drink again in his resurrected body either on earth or in heaven, but that he won't celebrate this meal until its final culmination in it's um, in the marriage supper of the Lamb. One commentator even suggests that since traditionally there were four cups of wine at the Passover and Jesus likely only got to three, what he's saying is, I'm not going to drink that cup. I'm not going to drink the fourth one this is, a very, in a very real sense, this is an unfinished meal that we will not all celebrate together until the final and full kingdom of God is ushered in and culminates. That's when Jesus says it is finished on the cross. His work of reconciling sinners was certainly finished, but there's a sense in which this regular meal reminds us of all that we have to look forward to. Of the unfinished nature of this meal. The bread and the cup representing Jesus' body and blood, they are sweet to us, they are visceral reminders to us of God's love for us, of his grace. But as we've often said, like this is a very, very meager meal. Like if you came here, if you skipped lunch, if you're like intermittent fasting or something, and you came expecting this to be your the the your your breaking of the fast, like it's not gonna do much. There's not many calories that you are consuming here. We need to keep taking it over and over and over, and that is a very, very good thing. There is a sense in which this meal was never meant to fill you, to satisfy you. Good thing we have a potluck after this service to do that. But this meal reminds us to look forward to his return, to our full redemption of our bodies and to look forward to a meal with the Lord Jesus himself, which will be full and will satisfy our every hope and desire. A few years ago, several of us were at a conference where one pastor outlined the whole story of the Bible as a story of two meals. The first meal beginning with the serpent coming to God's people and deceiving them, coming to them to Get them to not trust in God's promises. Getting them to uh, deny their hope and their faith in God's promises with an offer. An offer of take and eat. And they did. And thus, the world spun into chaos and rebellion against the God who made it and created it. But then, God would later come to his people. This time, acting on their behalf in obedience in offering them, not death, but life, with the exact same offer, that of take and eat. Take and eat of my body that you might experience communion with me. Communion that you've never experienced in your life, in the history of humanity before, but that is now finding its final full uh, fulfillment in Christ. And yet, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 that by taking this meal, we proclaim his death until he comes. Every time that we take of this meal, there's a sense in which the meal that we are about to take together is still unfinished. The Lord's Supper is a meal that is like suspended in time. I've been thinking a lot about these tables this week, and I add this image in my head this week of like one of these tables like floating in the air, like suspended in the air. And it has this giant rubber band that is like pulling it back in history. A giant rubber band uh, back into the Passover meal, which it points. Or even this table stretching back to the Lord's Supper, and then an even bigger rubber band back to the Passover in Egypt. But then the thing that is keeping it suspended in the air is a giant rubber band that's pulling it towards the future, a giant rubber band of another table, of that of another supper, of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and each are just pulling and stretching these tables as we come to them. But then, at the return of Christ, it's like the Lord Jesus himself will come with like a giant one of those like giant commemorative things of scissors when you like cut the ribbon. And he like snips this giant rubber band that is going to the past, and this table is just flung into the future where it finds its fulfillment, where it finds its end, it finds its purpose in the coming of Christ, in the making of all things new, in the final and full peace of communing together with each other and with him. And so this meal is a present declaration of the hope that we Christians have. Every time we come forward, we are proclaiming to the world around us that the kings and the kingdoms of this world will fail. The United States will fail. The Constitution will fail. The King Jesus will not. It is on this side of the cross, through death and weakness, that the world makes any sense. And we weakly declare to the world, we weakly declare to each other, we weakly declare to ourselves that we reject the worldly norms of power and pride, that the way of life is through humility and death. This is left-handed gospel stuff. So every time we come forward and partake of the bread and the cup, we proclaim to the world the most central reality about ourselves. The most central identity of all of us as we come to the table is not of Americans, is not of New Mexicans, is not of real estate agents or insurance agents or teachers or students or musicians or whatever it is. Our central identity is not that of Shermans or Stevens or Avery's or Sower's, Layers, Johnson's, Wards, Pettinger's, these are not our central identities. Our central identities is that of a Christian. We are Christ's. We are the body of Christ united to one another as we are united to him. This meal is a giant bumper sticker that we keep slapping on the back of us every week to say that we belong to him. And so we remember the past. We live and celebrate as we stand suspended in the present and we long expectingly, for the future. I'm going to leave you with this so we, we can actually get to this celebration meal that we've been thinking about. In their wonderful little book, The Compelling Community, Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop say this, Sometimes when my church is celebrating the Lord's Supper, I let my gaze drift from person to person, imagining what they'll be like in heaven. There's Margaret over there. She's the one who sends me all those discouraging emails. Yet she loves her Lord and our church. Squinting into the future, I can almost see her now, shining with the wise love and compassion of her Lord. Joe, who's sitting a few rows back, he reliably tells it as he sees it. That may at times be off-putting today, but the beauty of the honesty underneath will one day result in heartfelt praise for our King. Then there's Marie who's talked with me a dozen times about her struggles with unbelief. I can picture her now gazing with, un sorry, Marie's not, she's made up, and I can't can't even do it. Uh, Marie's a stand-in for several of you. I can picture her gazing with unending joy and confidence on her faithful Redeemer. Communion is not just about you and Jesus. It is, but it isn't. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So this is a family meal. Just like when you eat together as a family, that meal isn't just about your sustenance. When you sit down as a family, it's not about getting the necessary calories for that day. It's about unity. It's about togetherness. So go ahead and just look at people tonight as they partake. It's, it's, it's kind of weird, but it, it shouldn't be. I love watching you guys as you come to the table each week. Perhaps even uh, go up to someone, perhaps even someone who's gotten on your nerves tonight. Perhaps even me, who's gotten on your nerves tonight. And just imagine what they might be like in heaven. Shake their hand. Give them a hug. This is your family. This is your body. This is Christ's body broken for us that we do in remembrance Of him. Take and eat." Our Father, we are so thankful for your plan of redemption. What a marvelous plan to reconcile sinners to yourself and not only to make them right, but to make us your sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, thank you for your passion, for your compassion, your love for us, your obedience to the Father, that you would give of yourself, considering us to be even more significant than your earthly needs and desires, that you might take the wrath of the Father on yourself, that we might have your life. Holy Spirit, we pray that you might uh, refresh us anew tonight, that you might be present in these elements, the body, the bread, the, the cup, that we might experience that we might viscerally be reminded and even nourished by this meal, by the table host himself, the Lord Jesus. Our Father, we pray that you would do a great work in this meal tonight and ongoingly in the work of our church here, Christ Church in Albuquerque, but God, we pray, O triune God, we pray that you might make much of yourself and that you might nourish and sustain your church around the world through this meal. For those who have not yet taken it today, this Lord's Day, and we'll try in God, we pray that you would do so each week, that you might strengthen and nourish your church until you come. Lord Jesus, even so we pray. Come, come quickly. In Christ's name, amen.
0: We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www. ChristChurchABQ.com